This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A, which will probably be the last Q&A in New York City, unless things go horribly wrong, which is known to happen now and then. Uh, I should start my move next week. And then I'm hoping that I'll just be able to do these from an empty room until everything gets moved and you know, the last bits of work from the house are finished so we could you know move in, move in. But we'll see what happens. Hopefully, I'll just be talking to an empty room next week, kind of having a laugh about this. I might have to skip one or two weeks just depending on how things fall, but I'm going to try to keep it up. And at the very least, I think it would be funny for me just like talking to my cell phone in the corner of an empty room or something might be kind of amusing or it might be annoying. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. But either way, let's uh, jump in and see what questions we got this week. First up over on Floatplane, Solar Powered Owl is looking for an audio lag tester akin to the Time Sleuth. They've appreciated the trust which you could test approach to things and want to apply the same methodology to testing upscalers, transcoders, receivers, TVs, etc. And just want to make sure that no audio latency has been introduced. So I have never used a device like that. I've done do-it-yourself solutions. I've tested uh, other things that could also do that, but I don't know of a dedicated device, and I think it would be very cool if something like that existed, something that generated a tone and then also had a microphone in it that could read exact milliseconds. And heck, maybe that's something Dan and Kristoff might be willing to make for Time Sleuth 2. And by the way, I don't know if there's going to be a Time Sleuth 2. I'm just assuming everybody's always working on a different variation of their products. But that's a great idea and something that I would love to have. But the good news is, unlike video lag testing or controller lag testing, it's a lot easier to test audio. And I think a really great way to do it would be to find a game that you have that makes a noise at the same time that something lights up on screen. So like, let's say a title menu, right? And I think in older games, you could find this where there's no music or quiet music, but when you go up and down in the menu, it makes a sound and sometimes a loud sound. And that way you could take your phone and I would try to use a tripod. I would try to measure and all right, it's exactly five feet, two inches away from the TV, whatever it is, but just, I would use your cell phone. I would try to make as controlled of an environment as possible. And you can just use 60 frame per second, but if your phone has higher modes like that, you know, 120, whatever it is, uh, uh, 240 on a lot of phones too, you could try to use that as long as it records audio and video. And then what I would do is hit record and in that menu have the arrow, you know, go through up and down or whatever it is, a button press, a jump, anything where you light up on the screen um, and there's also a sound that goes with it. And I would run the test 10 times and then play that back in either software that you could um, advance one frame at a time or you might have to use video editing software and click one frame at a time. But you basically just count how many clicks from when your when your light lights up on screen to when the sound happens and obviously do this direct into your tv first and that way you could count and say okay well i'm using 60 frames per second mode um and you know it's 15 clicks before 
you know, from the time I see it light up to the time I hear the sound. And it's, you know, I did it 10 times in a row and sometimes it's 17 clicks and sometimes it's 13, but it's always the same. It's actually probably going to be a lot more than that, but just saying, get your baseline reading and it's a pain, you know, it takes some time, but it's not hard. You know, if you get a tripod, a cheap $2 little clip for your cell phone, any game that makes a sound and lights up at the same time, set all that up and then plug in your audio receiver or then plug in your, your DAC or your transcoder or your HDMI splitter or whatever it is that you're trying to test and then see if it adds within reason anymore. So let's say you test an audio jump in a video game where the character lights up when it jumps and you hear the beep or the jump sound and it's, you know, 48 clicks every time, you know, sometimes it's 48, sometimes it's 45, sometimes it's 55 and you plug in your HDMI splitter and it's within that same tolerance, call it zero. To be honest, even if it's like 55 clicks and now is the most from before and now it's 60, you're talking of sub level of lag that's like it's way less than a frame it's closer to milliseconds and it's not really something that you would notice even in rhythm games because don't forget all of those games like guitar hero and uh, ddr and stuff like that they still pull the controller within a reasonable time not every millisecond not every scan line like the atari 2600 and crts so there's always going to be a little bit of tolerance there and so if that's something that's super important to you that's how i would do it now but I agree, I would much rather prefer to have a device where I just say, you know, all right, same thing, measure the distance, maybe put the device on the tripod with the same silly $2 cell phone clip and run the audio test through your TV, then run the audio test through any other equipment and see where you go from there. And so it's not um, fast and it's pretty boring, but it's not hard to do. So I would give that a shot and see what you think. Um, and if you have any questions or want me to elaborate anymore, please let me know. Moving over to Patreon, Adam Adam Ant was wondering if I could set them straight on older model TVs. They remember back in the 2000s, TVs started coming standard with component connections. These TVs were also a lot heavier than the TVs from the 90s. They were also flat instead of convex. Why were they so much heavier? Do light guns work on them? And if they happen to see one for cheap or on the curb, should I get it? Um... Well, I'll start with the last question. If you have the room to store CRTs, I would always say yes to that last question, especially if you have a basement or a garage or a shed where you're not stepping over it like I did in this apartment to get to stuff. Um, I would I would say yes, get it and test it because you never know. You might get a TV home and decide you love it, decide you don't, and you put it back in a recycling center or whatever it is. But if you can get something for free, I would try it. But to go back to your other questions, I believe they were so much heavier because you needed more glass when you had a flat glass front. Now, I'm basing this off of some videos I've seen and some information I've heard, but I don't think I've ever discussed this with a CRT maker or anything like that. But I think the reason is because on the older curved glass fronts, um, the reason that they were curved was because there's a vacuum inside of that. You know, so all the air and all the pressure's out. So there's a lot of pressure on the outside of that glass. And having it curved is what allowed it to withstand that pressure because the curvature of it was able to keep it from cracking and breaking. Whereas once you had flat glass fronts, 
you had to use a lot thicker glass in order to withstand that much pressure, which is why a lot of the cheaper TVs had a flat piece of glass that was right up against the curved piece of glass behind it. I've seen that. Uh, I remember that back in the day. I haven't seen any of those TVs in a while, but it was like a fake flat CRT. Um, so that's, I believe, why they were heavier. Do light guns work on them? Some of them. Um, I've randomly tried, and uh, some work, some don't. The ones that do work often only really work in the middle, and when you get towards the edges, they kind of don't. Uh, so I think I would it would be safe to just, uh, in your mind, assume that if it's got flat glass, it's not going to be usable for light guns. Um, if it is, cool. You have a, a great bonus. But if not, you know, then it's kind of not the thing. So uh, I would just kind of approach it that way just in case. Um, and I guess that's pretty much all your questions but you know overall when it comes to crts if it's in good condition if it's got the inputs you want and it's something that you have the space and i guess the physical ability because some of these are really heavy but you know if you have the ability to grab it for free then it's not going to cause you trouble i would just do it because the worst thing that could happen is you decide you know what this doesn't work or you know i don't like it as much as i thought and you could either give it away or just drop it off at a recycling center or something so i would definitely give it a try but hopefully i answered your questions Next up, Shurjur said they're currently in the process of buying a Beovision Avant 32 CRT, but they don't see it having any component inputs. Would Mike Chi's comp to RGB be the right choice? Do I know if the TV would handle the output correctly up to 480p? So I've only heard of that TV before. I've never used one. They look awesome. And uh, it did remind me a lot of my Luva Articos and Aconda, which were not the same TV, but they were of the same era. I think I could be thinking of the wrong TV here, but whether regardless of which TV I'm thinking of, the answer is going to be complicated because I had two of those Luva TVs, one of or both of which had component video inputs, but the Aconda only accepted 480p through the VGA input and the Articos handled 480p through both, but would not ever handle 480i through the VGA input, would not handle 720p at all and would handle a 1080i. So it would really depend on the TV. You would want to look up the manual for it. Uh, you said comp to RGB, so I'm assuming it's got a SCART input. And I don't think the SCART input would handle 480p on a TV like that. I hope I'm wrong, but I think that would only be up to 15 kilohertz. And with those TVs, it's hard to tell if they're going to process 240p as 480i or if it's going to process it properly. So, you know, I, I think that's an awesome TV and I think there would be a million uses for it, but you just might want to double and triple check. Will it process 240p correctly? Will it accept 480p and up at all? Or do you really just have a very, very awesome 480i TV? And if you have the space for it, there's still so many good reasons to own that. Um, but that's just something that you might want to take into account. So uh, please follow up, though. I'd love to hear how that TV performs. I think I vaguely remember some people I know doing videos about it, so you might want to check that out, too. But if you have access to the 240p test suite at, at, for any console, by the way, that's by far the easiest way to test 240p support. And 480p will be pretty easy as well. Pick any console that could do 480i and 480p, like PlayStation 3, whatever, um, Dreamcast, and then see what happens when you switch it into 480p mode. Does it work or does it not? So uh, good luck with that. And if you don't mind, please keep us updated. 
Josh R. says they work at a big retro arcade, and they do everything they can to make sure they always have everything running on original CRT monitors. However, there's a limited number of them, and their lives are pretty quickly running out. They did manage to get a large number of later model CRTs that they've been putting in a few cabinets. However, they're late enough models that they only take VGA input. So what they do for the average CGA game is run it through one of those GBS 8200s and a scanline generator. But they were wondering about modding those with GBS control. They were wondering if that upgrade would particularly benefit from a conversion from an arcade game, or does it mostly benefit consoles? Uh, So I think this is the perfect scenario for GBS control. I think the original GBS 8200's firmware is passable at best. If you're playing a fun, lighthearted game, like, you know, I don't want to insult anybody who loves this game, but I love the game The Simpsons, the arcade game. I think it's a lot of fun. But I don't think, unless it's really bad, I don't think I would ever walk up to it and go, oh, this this has too much lag for me. I'm not swinging Marge's vacuum cleaner around fast enough. Uh, you know, for games like that, I don't I don't know if many people would notice or care because the, the point of that game is just a fun experience with your friends. But if you throw that on a Street Fighter machine, yeah, it's going to be a huge difference. But since you already own the GBS hardware, and since the cost of... You could buy those Wi-Fi modules in bulk for practically nothing, uh, you know, relatively speaking compared to other scalers and stuff like that. I think that it's the worthiest upgrade to do because you're right. CRTs are the best for arcade machines. And just, by the way, got to commend you all on your efforts. The fact that you would rather get a 480p only CRT and try to make that work instead of just throw in the towel and just go right to a cheap LCD. The fact that you're putting effort in is amazing and well appreciated by everybody in the retro gaming community. But you're right, CRTs are not going to last forever. And they're especially not when they're in an environment where they're used every day. You know, my BVMs and PVMs will probably last longer than me because they're not on every day. They're not even on every week. Whereas in arcade, where when you turn on the arcade, you turn on all the machines and you turn them all off when you're done every day yeah that has a pretty finite life cycle so in that case for both flat panels and for vga monitors gbs control is awesome because of how little latency it has and even more specifically in the case of using vga crts everything's kind of staying in the analog realm so you take the rgb from the arcade machines and if you're already installing these you're you're obviously knowing about voltage and and how to transcode all of that so i'm not going to waste everybody's time talking about that unless you want me to asking a different question though i want to don't want to take away from your answer here but uh, it's assumed that you already know how to get the voltage translated properly for the gbs control then that processes it and outputs vga so going into a vga monitor that's perfect the lag is almost imperceptible i would say imperceptible i would call the gbs control a zero lag device even though it technically isn't it, it really is even in an arcade environment and that has scan lines that you could add to it so you no longer would need a scan line generator and as i showed in that video classic consoles on vga monitors you could make vga monitors look identical to rgb monitors so uh yeah my my answer to your question is yes that is so worthy to do and it's time consuming but once you do it I mean, I would challenge anybody to tell the difference between that and an original arcade monitor. Honestly, it's going to be that close. With the scan lines on 100%, that's the only other thing. Make sure scan lines are set to full so it blacks out the um, the different areas so you get the true separation like you would before. But uh, honestly, I just think that's such a good solution. And the other good thing about those is once you've got it set up, 
It just works that way until you change it. So you don't have to log into Wi-Fi and connect them and change it every time, every day when you power it up. It should just be the exact same every time when you turn it on and, you know, turn it off, flip it on the next day, it should go right back to where it was. And even if it doesn't, if they're all Wi-Fi based, you could just have a list of which one goes to which arcade machine and log in that way. So, yeah, I definitely think that is absolutely an excellent solution for those. And when the time comes that you have to switch to LCD monitors, they're good. Um, you know, there's better scalers out there, but in an arcade environment, you know, you should be fine. I think, I think for the context that we're talking about here, the fact that you're putting so much effort into keeping these machines going in a, in a, the best way possible, if you end up having one or two LCDs with, you know, not the sharpest scaler, but no lag, I think it would be fine. So yeah, once again, really commend you and your team on on making sure that these things are working well because it's so easy to just say, oh, I'm tired of this. Let me throw in a $100 monitor and get one of those SCART to HDMI converters with you know a million frames of lag and be done with it. So um, definitely you know, commend you all for your effort, and I would highly recommend going through with that because I think it's just going to be a very worthy upgrade. A quick one from Adam Adam Ant. They've heard me say to be cautious about third-party power supplies for consoles, but they've also heard me say that I do approve of some. Is the N64 re-PSU from GameTech one of the ones I approve of? I have not personally tested it, so I don't like to give recommendations on things that I haven't personally tested. Now, I trust Jason, so Jason says they've been performing pretty well, uh, but I mean this with, with all the love and respect in the world. Unless I've, I've got my hands on it, tested it myself, and put it through its paces, I just I don't feel comfortable saying you know a solid yes. But I will say that if I was going to take a risk on one, getting something from Jason would be something I'd be comfortable trying at least. So uh, a, a cautious... Yeah, give it a try, but once again, no disrespect to anybody, the creator of the re-PSU, no disrespect to Jason or to you or anybody. I just, I'm I'm just a nerd with OCD. I don't want to tell somebody this is good unless I know for a fact. And even with stuff like those cheap HDMI devices, I also remind people that, you know, they're not always consistent. So you could buy 10 and one of them could be junk and the other nine could be great. So I just, I like to make sure that I'm very clear in my recommendations and I do take it very seriously. I feel genuinely awful when I make a bad recommendation. Luckily, I've only gotten it wrong once or twice, and I've tried to bend over backwards to correct that, but it's still, it's very important to me. Um, And I kind of do wish a lot more people put a little more responsibility in their recommendations. So I try to to really make sure that I, I only steer people in the right direction. So sorry for, you know, the 20 second answer and the one minute of word vomit. I just wanted to make sure I was clear and, um, and why I answered that way. Jake Scott says, more of a personal question. Sounds like you're pretty excited about a bigger living space, but they're curious to know what about being in that downtown apartment are you going to miss the most? Excitement, friends, police cars, and jackhammers. Uh, Excellent question. I got to be honest. I love living in New York City. I would never leave if there wasn't other other positive factors involved. Uh, I don't, I just, my whole life, you know, the first time I came for a concert or something or whatever it was, like I just felt at home here. I don't know why. It's weird. Maybe it's because I'm hyperactive and my brain's always going a million miles an hour. So having all of these things around me kind of calms me down. Um, I think that's also why I feel so at peace in the middle of a mosh pit during a heavy metal concert. But it's more, you know, and also why I like metal, because there's always a million things going on. Same thing with classical guitar, classic music, Spanish acoustic. You know, it's the same thing. And I think New York City is like 
the living accompaniment uh, accompaniment that's I'm probably getting that word wrong but hopefully you know what I mean it's like the, the you know walking through that and so uh I I'm going to miss everything about it except when I do a live stream, the live stream's two and a half hours long, not an hour and 45, because every few minutes I got to stop what I'm doing, move over here, re repack, you know, unpack. So, you know, th stuff like that is the only thing I'm definitely not going to miss is just the small amount of space. And the only other thing that always bugged me is I love watching movies with surround sound, but I've been in apartments for 10 years now, and I like to be the neighbor that no one knows exists. I don't like to bother anybody. I like to mind my business and just, just be me. And I don't want to turn my stereo up because I don't want all my neighbors hearing the thump of a subwoofer at, you know, 10 o'clock at night while I'm trying to watch an action movie. So that's the only other thing is like, it's going to be really neat to just turn up my stereo to a normal volume. And it's funny too, like even I was at a friend's house last year and same thing, we watched a movie, the stereo was cranked. And as soon as the bass hit, I immediately got subconscious, self-conscious and was like, oh man, are your neighbors going to be, wait, you don't, you're in a house and there's nobody above or below you. There are no neighbors that could hear you. So I think that's it. I think everything else I'm really going to love. And even you know, the sirens and the noise and all that stuff is it's super annoying when I'm recording, but it's the only other time it really bothers me. So yeah. Um, you know, I wish I could be more specific and be like, Oh, my favorite restaurant, or I love that my friends are a handful of blocks away that I could just walk to, but it's all of those things. It's everything. And, you know, living in the burbs, I grew up in the middle of the woods and then I moved to the city in in Bridgeport. And then I kind of moved to a place that was sort of in between all that. And, they all they definitely have the the positive factors to it and there's a lot of cool things about it owning a car without having to spend like four hundred dollars a month on a parking space that's why i sold my car a couple of years ago <laughs> i could afford the car i couldn't afford the parking space but you know all that stuff is good but i, I just i feel like even though i wasn't born in new york city I, I i just kind of feel like this is my home definitely so uh, we'll see how it goes. Maybe in six months I'll be uh, I'll be loving the burbs. I'll be all physically fit because I'll be jogging and mowing the lawn. Or maybe I'll be like a 900-pound blob that's depressed and not in the city anymore. We'll find out. If I suddenly need a wide-angle camera to shoot my own videos, we'll know which direction I went in. <laughs> Red Crested Briegel just ordered a pre-built Mr. and an official fully enclosed PCB case from Mr. Kits. They already have a 2.4 gigahertz N30, SN30, and M30 8-bit dough controllers that they use with analog consoles and are wondering if it's possible to use them with their mister. Uh, I believe so because I think that even if the ones that you have have original console adapters to them, you might be able to get USB adapters. So the receiver dongle thing, I'm pretty sure 8-bit dough sells USB versions. Um, I could be thinking of something else, though. I'm sorry, I didn't have time to research. I just answer these in real time off the top of my head. But I think they have USB receivers. And I believe you could, if you don't mind constantly syncing, I believe if they do, you could use one and then just sync between the different controllers when you trade controllers. Um, but you also have heard of solutions like the Damon Byte adapters, Blister, and Snack. So the only reason you would ever need anything other than a Damon Byte adapter is light guns on CRTs. 
that's it. That's the only other. That's the only reason there are snack adapters out there now that are good. There are really good snack adapters in the works coming out. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about them yet. Allowed. I mean, I'm, I'm sure my friends would have no problem with me talking about it. But I, I don't want to talk about anything until they make it public out of respect. But there's some cool snack stuff coming out. I hope Mick does some more Damon Bite adapters for different consoles. But the, the pros of the Damon Bite is on Mister. They're about one millisecond of lag or less. So zero. Definitely keep that in your head. Not one frame, one millisecond. So that means if you're using a wired controller, it's pretty much zero. And the only case it's not zero is light guns. With your wireless controllers, it's going to have whatever they add, but they're not bad. They're, they're, uh, in fact, Porkchop Express from Mr. Add-ons has that spreadsheet where he tested all of this stuff that you could definitely reference. Um Snack adapters are going to be what you want for CRTs, though. So if you use a light gun. So if you want to play, you know, Nintendo, Genesis, Super Nintendo, you get the snack adapters for them. Uh, I might even hold off to see what, what's coming next, unless you, you're dead set on doing this now. But the Damon Byte adapters, you know, those are my favorites so far. Because original controllers, no perce- perceived lag whatsoever. And they do, I think, work with... Uh, the wireless. I haven't tested them because I'm not not too big in that stuff. But yeah, I mean, what what you're describing seems like a really good setup. I would just check first if there was a USB dongle receiver adapter that you could use with those, because that would be the cheapest and easiest solution overall. And even if you have three controllers, but you only plan on using two people at a time, just buy two of the USB receivers and be done with it. And then just resync whenever you use it. Uh, if you want to use original controllers that are wired and the wireless, look into the Damon Byte. Double check that they work with those wireless controllers, though, please. I, don't, I certainly don't want to make that recommendation without testing it myself, but give that a try. I believe they work. Um, so those are great solutions. And only go with Snack uh, for light guns if that's a thing. And I believe there's a bunch of solutions to to use, quote-unquote, light guns on flat panels by doing things like uh, use a Wiimote and a Bluetooth adapter and a sensor bar. So it essentially turns the Wii boat into a mouse and you could see the cursor on the screen and you could play your light gun games that way, but it's not with original light guns and it's not the same way. It's more like using a mouse in emulation. Um, and it, it, that's actually pretty cool. It's like, imagine a built-in Sinden light gun into a mister. So that that's a decent solution. Hopefully I'll have time to do a video on that when I'm settled because I've had that kit to do it for over a year now and it's still sealed in the box. So hopefully I could show that at some point soon. But yeah, good question. One more quick one from Red Crested Regal. They have official GameCube memory cards. They give the message the object inserted into slot A or B cannot be used when they try to use them with their GameCube. But when they're plugged into a Wii, they work fine. And purchasing a brand new cheap third-party card and trying it with a GameCube gives the same message. Is the GameCube done for? Um, I don't know. I've never run into this problem before. But what I can tell you is you could jump on eBay and get replacement front boards that are probably pulled out of dead systems but tested and working. And you could just... Uh, no, no tools or soldering other than basic screwdrivers and the security bit for Nintendo consoles necessary. But you could open up your GameCube... Um, since you don't have to take out the DVD drive, it's actually pretty easy. You just use the security bit to take the top case off and then you could, uh, the front piece kind of pops out and then there should be one or two cables holding it in and that's it. You just replace the front entire front piece, controller ports, memory card reader, 
Uh, so that seems like the cheapest solution, because even if that's not the fix, if it turns out something else, something's corrupt, at least you have a spare now if that ever happens. But I would try that first just because it's going to be your most inexpensive solution. And the only thing that you would need are a Phillips head screwdriver and a, uh, that security bit screwdriver, and that's it. So um, give that a try and see if that fixes it, because the fact that it works on a Wii and not that one GameCube really kind of makes me think there's something wrong with those memory card ports, especially that it can't be used in either. I guess if you have access to a second GameCube, a Friends or something like that, maybe try the memory cards in there if you have the ability to. But the last time I bought one of those front boards, I think it was five bucks. So, you know, you know, who knows what shipping would add to that, but it was cheap enough where I felt like this is worth it to me. Five bucks, you know, I'll skip a beer tonight. That'll pay for for it. <laughs> New York City beers are much more than that, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, but yeah, so I, I would just give that a try first, and hopefully that's all it is, just a new memory card assembly. But if anybody in the comments is aware of this problem and has any other solutions, you know, I know hitting it with compressed air is always a good thing to, just to see if there's something stuck in there. Uh, but other than that, I don't really know of any troubleshooting tips. So if anybody does, please let me know. I'm all ears. Richard Webster wants to know what would be the simplest, cost-friendly way to connect and convert a PC outputting 480p to a 240p SCART RGB consumer CRT. They've looked into outputting a 15 kilohertz signal, but haven't had success, and it doesn't really suit their current setup. Is there a box that can do this conversion to save the hassle? Um, yes. So there's a lot of boxes that could do that. You're probably going to have to use more than one, though. So you're probably going to have to use just your built-in PC software to set it manually to 480 by 640 by 480. Um, and, you know, later versions of Windows, that's more tricky than older versions. But it's I think it's doable on pretty much all platforms. So that's step one. Step two is if you don't have a VGA out on your computer, you're going to need to use one of those cheap HDMI to VGA converters. I, I list the ones I use, retrorgb.link forward slash cheap DAC, D-A-C, and uh, those are the ones that I've been using. You know, My normal disclaimer that you could buy 10 of those, nine will work perfect and one won't because that's what you get with cheap equipment like that, but they're very inexpensive. So that's probably going to be something that you would need for step one in most cases. Um, there are downscaling devices coming out that uh, that would have HDMI in, but that's, that's probably the first step. Um, and then decide from there. If you want to do your own modding, you could get a GBS control. So that's the GBS 8200 board with a Wi-Fi module flashed with custom firmware. And then you would just do HDMI to VGA into that. And then let that downscale from uh, from 480p to 240p, and then that's going to get you. That's actually going to get you either component video or VGA out. But you could use that new SCART uh, thing that I. I think I have one right here. Yeah, you could use the uh, HD15 to SCART to plug that into your SCART connector. So. Um, that's a good solution for one of them. Uh, the other thing you could do, if you were going to use a RetroTank 5X for other stuff, you could pick up one of those when they come back in stock in a few weeks and then use that to downscale. And for that situation, you would want HDMI to component, go in the component video inputs, and then you would need a second DAC uh, HDMI to either VGA or component. And then same thing is coming out of the GBS control. You'd either need one of the HD15 discards, or if your monitor has component video input, that would work too. 
So that's pretty much it for now. Um, you could look at different solutions. You could replace the arc uh, the video card in your PC with an arcade VGA video card that could just output straight 15 kilohertz. And I I think that one might be safe to just tie H and V together. I mean, it's been a couple of years, but I'm pretty sure I put that on a scope, and it it wasn't a, it wasn't bad to do that. Versus like you know you would never want to just take a VGA signal and, and tie H and V together without some kind of circuit. Even so, I would still probably recommend getting the HD15 Discart just because it's cleaner and you don't have to worry about anything else. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's a few other ways around this. You could try to set your your video card to a super resolution mode, so like 1536 wide by 240 high, and hope that uh, that's compatible. But there's a lot of things involved in that that could go wrong. You don't want to send the wrong signal to your monitor. So just using a downscaler like that, I think is probably your best option and pretty cost effective if you're able to mod a GBS control yourself. At that point, you should be able to do all of this for not, I mean, for definitely under a hundred bucks without a doubt. If you do, uh, if you do some of the work yourself and you buy the HD 15 discard and some cables and stuff like that. So you know, it, overall, too, the two solutions I mentioned are very low, almost imperceptible lag, a few milliseconds. Things like the Extron Super Emotions uh, have a little bit, have about the same lag, but they're a lot more expensive. So, yeah, I think I think the recommendations I gave are probably the best fit. But if something doesn't feel right, just uh, follow up with another question and I'll elaborate more for you. Tony just wanted to follow up with some answers from last week's discussions about cross points and other stuff. Uh, the Extron crosspoint can accept balance and unbalanced audio. RCA audio is unbalanced, so the manual says to connect the left and right connections to the ground on the input, where for the output, the left and right connection should be left unconnected, left minus R minus. Um, those are the differences between Renee's input and output boards, but you could break the L minus and R minus tabs off if you wanted to convert an input board into an output board. Honestly, if the audio sounds fine, it's probably okay to be left alone. I agree. I also discussed with Tian Fong on one of the streams that we did who tested with MD Fourier through a cross point and said that it was really good. Audio did not get destroyed at all. So uh, it seems like I, I would agree with Tony and uh, my guess from last week was, you know, a good gut feeling in that if everything sounds fine, this is one of the rare cases where if it looks fine and it sounds fine, it's probably fine. Um, you've probably, if you've anybody's been listening to this podcast for a while, have heard me say, just because it looks fine doesn't mean it is a million times. This is one of the rare scenarios where if it sounds fine, I, I can't imagine any problems. Also, in response to understand colors and color space, they recommend videos from displaced gamers. That would be a, a hell yeah. I, I love that channel. Great. They, they dig deep into the nerdy side of things, uh, but that's kind of what we all want here, right? So I'll, I will add these links that Tony dropped into the, uh, uh, into the specific videos they were talking about, but definitely Displaced Gamers is a, is some, a channel that you want to sub to. Lots of great videos. So thanks for chiming in. Anthony McCalso said they noticed some noisy video when using the Otaku SCART switch, the one that I reviewed, with their RetroTink 5X. At, at first, they thought it was their SCART cable, but then they plugged it directly into the Tink 5X and the noise was gone. Do you think it could be the output SCART cable? They're using the Cable Direct SCART cable from Amazon. They had to remove the metal housing at the end and use a standard plastic SCART housing to get it to fit through the opening in the transparent case. 
Is there an alternative SCART cable you would recommend, or do you think their switch could be defective? So your switch certainly could be defective. There could have been a motherboard revision change, but my gut is telling me it's the Cable Direct cable because I have a couple of those and they're not really shielded. They're big, thick cables and they have a ground for every video line, but they're not shielded. They're just two wires next to each other, a ground and a video. So that would be the number one thing to check just based on the cable build. Now, I will also say that those Cable Direct SCAR cables are so cheap that don't feel bad buying one because that's, like I always say, that's another tool in your toolbox now. If you ever need a quick test or a quick run or, you know, you want to verify something, my my setup stopped working. Well, let me try the SCAR cable because now I have my spare cable right here. Like, I think they were $15 or $12 the last time I bought them. They probably went up in price just because everything went up in price, but... You didn't do wrong by buy that buying that one, but my gut tells me that that's the problem. Um, the best thing that you can get is, I don't know where they are anymore. I think they're all packed up. No, I got one here. Of course, I always keep these within, the, within grasp. The SCART coupler uh, performed the best. This performed as well as a fully shielded one-inch SCART cable. So if, you're, if you have the ability to plug everything in this way, that would be the best, but depending on your setup, that would mean that you'd have a RetroTINK 5X stuck to and dangling off of something. So it's probably not going to be the best for your setup. So I would just go and pick from uh, either retro gaming cables or retro access and buy one of their shielded cables. Since you're using the RetroTINK 5X, consider that flat SCART cable that I reviewed because you could kind of fold it around so that you don't really see it sticking out the side like you as much as you would another one. Um, and it performed perfectly. So I'll leave a link to the review for that, but I would definitely say try a new SCART cable. And depending on your setup, it sounds like the flat SCART cable might be best for that one, but who knows how you, what creative way you might've connected these things. Maybe the SCART coupler is best, but yeah, it's my guts telling me it's the cable direct cable. Marcello Medini said, uh, I know you talk a lot about using a cheap DAC to convert HDMI to component, but does anyone use HD SDI in their setup? Or is it just them? They have a PVM20L5, and they have a Vita TV they sometimes use with it, that they go HDMI to a device that breaks out audio, and then they run audio to their shielded speakers and HDMI to their SDI converter to their PVM. Any downside in going digital to digital for this use case? Only one. Only one. There's no lag added by those. The, the quality is outstanding only downside is HD-SDI is only going to be 720p and 1080i, not 480p. And if you go regular SDI, that's only 480i, not 480p and not 240p. And the reason I'm so confident in this answer is because with the A-series BVMs, before Martin's 68X clone card came out, clone card's probably not even doing it justice. Like, masterfully reverse-engineered card is a better way to say it. It doesn't flow off the tongue as easy as clone card, but before that one came out, we were all scrambling to find some way to get our classic consoles working on that. And any way to get 480p would have been great, because then you just line double the 480p, and then, you know, you have a HD or HDMI to SDI converter, add some scan lines, and you're done. But there was no way I found to get 480p through SDI, and even 480i for things like PlayStation 2, um, 
it didn't always work. It never liked the signal from an open source scan converter, uh, even in pass-through mode, at least the SDI converters that I tried. I think I only tried like five, but there aren't that many out there. It's not like an HDMI to component converter where there's a hundred out there. So uh, that's, that's kind of why I'm 99.9% .9 sure the other resolutions don't work because not, it wasn't just me. Everybody with an A-series BVM was trying to solve this problem so they didn't have to buy the $2,000 68X card. They only had to spend 200 bucks on an SDI card. So that's the only downside, I would say. So if you're going 720p, then it should work totally perfect. Um, I, I would not have a single complaint about that in the slightest. And in fact, I think I used Wii U that way because their DS games have a lot of lag and I just couldn't do it with my plasma. You know, the emulation lag with the two to three frames of lag on my plasma TV, it just, it was impossible to beat new Super Mario Brothers. And then as soon as I switched over to the HD SDI converter, set it to 720p and finished it on my BVM, it was fine. I actually went back and forth between uh, going into my BVM with component in 480p and HD SDI to 720p and I ended up liking the look of 480p better, but they performed the same. So uh, excellent solution. Um, you mentioned you got adapters for free from an old conference center AV guy, and they already had the HD SDI card. So, I mean, you just, you got a great setup. If your goal is 720p and you get all that stuff for free, you have a lag-free setup that's really high quality. Uh, and, you know, give other resolutions a try. Maybe you have some miracle adapter that I'd never got my hands on. And if so, please let me know. Uh, but I think in your scenario of 720p through all that should be perfect. Alan Bingham said a few months ago they dumped all of the ROMs from their Genesis Mini, the emulation box, using a method found on GitHub, and their intent was to play these ROMs in a more hardware-accurate environment, their jailbroken analog Mega SG. However, they noticed that audio is terrible from these ROMs when using the Mega SG, specifically the volume level. Um... They even tried these ROMs out on standard software emulation and experienced the same audio issues as they do with the jailbroken Mega SG. So they only have a few theories of why this might be happening. The extraction method they linked above might be flawed, or M2 may have catered these ROMs so that uh, to use their own emulator so the games lack proper compatibility. So for that exact reason, to, to deter people from uh, dumping them. Um... I don't know. I, I don't think I've ever tried any of the dumped ROMs from the Mini, but it sounds to me like like the dumping process went wrong. And, um, you know, I've never done it. I, I, I don't really have too much to add, but this is kind of one of the reasons why I always download and, and have kept the downloads of the known good ROMs on my hard drive. Because while technically, yes, it's illegal to own ROMs for games that you don't own, you bought the Genesis Mini, you legally own those ROMs, you played them on the Mini, and now you just want to play them on another device. I mean, no one's suing you for that. Nobody. It's still technically illegal, but nobody's coming after you for buying something and then using the thing that you bought in different ways. If you dumped those ROMs and tried to sell them online, yeah, and you're on your own. you got no sympathy for me there. But um, in your case, I, you know, I know you prefer to use your own ROMs dumped, but these aren't cartridge ROMs. These are ROMs that were already floating around that M2 put on this, um, and your method of extracting them may have been fine, maybe it wasn't, but I I think that this is a slightly different mindset. And this I guess this part's uh, opinion, so certainly come to your own conclusion on this, but 
if you told me I have these cartridges from when I was a kid, I want to play this exact ROM on my modern solutions, it's important to me, I get that. There are other, my fellow nerds out there, there are some of them that say that's dumb, it's a one-to-one, bit-for-bit, exact recreation, and I would still say, but that's not what they asked for. They asked to use theirs, and that's what they want to do. And I get that. But in the case of somebody dumped ROMs, a company dumps ROMs onto a box and you redumped those yourself, I think, you know, I think I would just download ones that were verified and correct. And I think anything special on the Genesis Mini has already been dumped and verified and you could do some creative Googling and find it. So once again, that's just my opinion. You're welcome to to have your own opinion, to try to redump them in your own way, to try to really feel like you did it legally because you dumped the thing that you had in your hand. But if it were me in this one, I would just download them from somewhere else that have been verified and bit for bit checked. Um, and I, I probably wouldn't spend the time trying to do it. But if if you want to give it another try, I certainly wish you the best of luck. I just can't really offer too much because I don't have any experience dumping anything from the Genesis Mini. Scott Miller wants to know if there's a way to accurately measure frames per second from retro console games. There are where some games play at different frame rates than others. For instance, Virtual Racing on Genesis is said to run at 15 frames per second. How is this determined? So two answers. First, if you are a fellow nerd that is just curious, grab yourself an emulator uh, or download a bunch of emulators and see which one has a function that shows you how many frames per second it's running at. And the FPS was originally added to these emulators to test if your 486 PC was fast enough to reach the target 60 frame per second. But these days, I think most people use it for exactly what you're saying. They want to know more information about the game. And that's another thing I would love to have a a database of, to be honest. Maybe, uh, you know, everything kind of screeched to a halt with the move, but we were very close to getting a, a beta launch of the wiki up. Hopefully when things settle down after the move, I could finally just pull the trigger on that. But I would love to have a database of that. And I think the easiest way to accomplish it is what I just said with emulation. But if you wanted to do a really in-depth original hardware assessment of this, what you would have to do is capture uncompressed, so not sort of compressed, uncompressed video. You'd want to capture, I don't know, at least a minute, I would think, from... Uh, from each console and then or from yeah from each version of the game from each console so to use your own analogy uh virtual racing on the genesis capture a minute of that capture virtual racing on the 32x and then you'd want to run it through software that compares those exact frames and that would tell you the frame rate now digital foundry uses their own frame rate analysis tool that i believe they wrote in-house could be wrong about that there's one up on github for free that has a ton of problems Now, I say that, but I haven't used it in over a year, so I should rephrase that. I should be respectful and say the last time I used that, it had a ton of problems. Maybe now it's totally fixed and the the team has updated it, but uh, if anybody knows of a, a very reliable frame rate analysis tool, I would love to be able to use one and incorporate it in some videos for certain things that I do, because... You know, as I said at the beginning, if you're just a, a fellow nerd who's curious, emulation's fine. But if you really are a creator that wants to dig in deep and show these examples with indisputable proof where you could say, like, I did the research, here's, you know, here's exactly what I'm showing, it, it's kind of cool to go the extra mile to do that. Uh, and I just, I, the last time I tried that tool, it was very unreliable. The only other really cool thing is if you want to do things like uh, measure 
slowdown in games. So I think a great example would be the recompiled code for Mario 64. There's that one section where the frame rate would drop very badly on the cartridge of the game, but in the recompiled code, the frame rate stays very high. So it's very cool to be able to take two uncompressed captures, one of of each version of the game, and being able to do a side-by-side comparison like that. So uh, yeah, if anybody has a a solid tool for that, even if it's not open source, if it's something that I would have to purchase or, or sign an NDA to use, totally cool. I would be very happy with either of those things. I just want a really solid solution. And maybe the one up on GitHub is, is fine now. So, you know, once again, I apologize if I, I spoke about a, a year, a previous year's experience and it had already been fixed. But if anybody knows, I would certainly really like a solid tool that I could rely on. Mbalder said they recently picked up a Mister, and they're currently connecting it to their JVC RGB monitor using a Porta HDMI to VGA converter box with a VGA to BNC RGB cable using Mister's direct video. Um, looking at the post on Mr. Direct Video again, I mentioned it outputs TTL Sync, and I always say to check the service manual. So they did, and they have no idea what it means. So uh, before I continue, I just got to commend you right here by saying you knew what to look for, you went and found it, and now you can't really decipher the crazy language that it's in, but you thought enough to ask the question. So you're you're winning 100% here. Um, you know, you should be proud that you did all of the right work. Uh, and there's no way that you would ever understand any of this unless you had previous experience. I sure as heck didn't until somebody taught me. So great, totally winning. Um, what this means from your service manual is, first, they talk about the RGB inputs on, on the monitor. And they say that component, I always confuse component and composite, component video can accept the standard of about one volt peak to peak, and RGB should be accepting about 0.7 volts, around 700 millivolts peak to peak, with 75 ohm termination on it. So I don't want to go into too much detail about that, because essentially what that means is this is for consumer video level video voltages. This isn't for arcade boards or anything crazy. This is standard RGB and component video voltages. Now, the part that's relevant to what your question is, is it says the synchronized signal is one one cable only BNC connector that accepts between 0.3 volts and 4 volts peak to peak at 75 ohm termination. So the 75 ohm part means that it's it's at... It's with the load on it. It's it's not just voltage going in. It's voltage going in with the TV turned on. And it could accept as low as 300 millivolts reliably. To be honest, it could probably accept much lower than that too, but reliably guaranteed to sync on as low as 300 millivolts and can be safe to accept up to 4 volts at the 75 ohm load, which means you're perfectly safe to use TTL there. Um you know, great, great job finding this information. Uh, And this is obviously also the info I would need to answer the question. So totally winning there. Um, And you're safe. Your setup is perfectly, perfectly fine for this. Now, the other part of your question is that you wanted to use the looped output. So this stuff into the BNC ins and then take the BNC outputs of this card uh, into an RGB to comp so that you could also use it on a consumer grade CRT. 
They have a BNC discard cable from Retro Access, but it does not appear to have a resistor on the sync line. So second question, they don't have any soldering experience or equipment. They're wondering if there's an easy product they could put in line to step down the sync line. Is there something similar to a BNC terminator that they could loop the signal through? So a few answers to that. I have seen inline stuff that's 75 ohm, but not 470, which is about what you would need to do this. Um, and on top of that, you know, I think a lot of my answers to that would come down to something you already said. You don't already have any soldering equipment with you. You don't own that stuff. So my strong suggestion would be to just contact somebody to either mod that cable for you or make a new cable with the resistor in line so you don't have to do anything. Because while normally I would say, hey, you know, if you plan on soldering a bunch of stuff, it's good to have this equipment. But if this is the only mod you'll ever need, buying a new cable is going to be much cheaper than spending 100 bucks on the equipment that you might need to do all of this. Because remember, a resistor is 10 cents, but you know, you go to buy a pack of them. If you don't have them, if you can't find them locally, you're spending eight bucks in shipping from DigiKey or something like that. So this stuff adds up, you know, you'd need a multimeter to double check, which I think is actually a tool that most people who dabble in electronics should have anyway, but that's still 20 bucks right there. Then a decent soldering station is going to be 50 bucks. Then you need to buy solder and flux and, you know, you wouldn't need flux for this, but just saying, you know, this stuff will add up real quick where you could probably go to, uh, there's a few good eBay sellers as well as some of the major um, uh, cable makers that can make you this for like under 50, probably much less than that. So um, while there's nothing easy that you could put in line that I know of, I think the best solution for you would just be to to have a custom cable made with that in there. And I think most cable makers are used to hearing this question now because so much good information is being spread about voltage safety and all that stuff. So I think for your your solution, which sounds awesome, by the way, everything that you described sounds like a really cool setup. I just think buying a cable with a resistor in line would be fine. Um, and it would remove any question of safety from using the RGB to comp in the chain. So great setup. And uh, hopefully I could point you in the right direction with it. A couple more questions from Alan Bingham. First, they've been through a handful of PSP batteries over the years uh, because when they sit for a while, they either expand and almost blow up or just leak battery acid into their console. Luckily, it hasn't ruined their PSP yet, but that time may come if they don't soon get a better solution. Um, do I have any recommendations for the best PSP battery out there, one that they don't have to worry about blowing up or leaking? No, I am not aware of any, but I would love recommendations from people. And also, as, a, as the girl geek always, always make sure to remind us all of, I would recommend taking your batteries out of everything that you're not using on a regular basis. Everything. Your handheld consoles, your remote controls, your Wiimotes. Oh, how many Wiimotes I've seen ruined over the years from leaking batteries. Um, and even, to be honest, like... I have a, a TV remote that I barely use because I, I control everything with the Apple TV remote, and I opened that up a couple weeks ago, and there was corrosion on it, you know, from leaky batteries. And it's like this thing's only a couple years old. What the heck? Like I just put new batteries in six months ago. So if you're not using it, take the batteries out always. I think that's a very smart thing to do. Um, and I've just I've seen so many things get ruined because batteries were left in. So. Uh, I don't have a recommendation for the best one. If anybody knows of one, please let us know in the comments. But I think for me personally is I would just buy a cheap one. And I, was always, I would always leave it out unless it was being used. And if you saw it start to blow up or if you saw it, you know, keep it on 
keep it on something non-corrosive, piece of cardboard or something. And if it leaks out, you know, you'd have to just throw it out and get another. But I would like to know of a reliable solution if one exists. Uh, other question, in their nerd cave, like many of the rest of us, they have a ton of consoles hooked up at once. They currently have two Belkin Surge protectors, each with 12 outlets apiece, um, and eight of those 12 outlets swivel. So the swivel function has been excellent when dealing with huge power bricks, and 12 total outlets per surge protector has been great, but as their collection grows, they need more. They only have one receptacle close to their two TVs, and it only has two outlets. They'd really like to avoid daisy-chaining multiple surge protectors if possible. So do I have any recommendations for quality surge protectors that have a large number of outlets? Don't worry about cost. Uh, if cost isn't a factor, I would go to those office uh, office supply store type places and get the very long strips uh, where you probably could have 20 of them in a row that are meant for uh, circuit stations and, and server rooms and stuff where you need to plug a lot in in one room. Uh, and I would get a couple of those. Now, daisy chaining is not a good thing to do, but in the scenario that you're talking about, you got a ton of consoles and a ton of displays. If you're really just using one console, or three in the case of the Tower of Power, Genesis, Sega CD, and 32X, but if you're just using one of those, two monitors, maybe you have a CRT and then you have your PC monitor so for streaming and your stereo and stuff like that, realistically, you're not, you're not turning on a whole bunch of things at the same time. So while it would be nice to have the best power support possible, it would only be a concern if it's, if you said, I want to turn on every console I own and be able to do a demo to switch between them on my Extron Crosspoint and send it to 10 different monitors. And that's when you would really want to worry about power and safety. But for basic nerd caves where you're only using one or three consoles at a time, I would worry about that a lot less. Uh, in the last question... They recently used their newly acquired Retroid 2 to dump all of their Game Boy ROMs and saves in order to use them on both their Jailbroken NT and their FX Pack Pro. After getting everything set up, they noticed something odd regarding the Jailbroken NT. Anytime they played a battery-backed original Game Boy game the, uh, that had a pre-existing save data, they had issues saving. The way all of these cores work is that you save in-game first, but then you have to exit to the game list and then manually turn your device off from there. If you don't, the saves are lost. With these particular games, once you got to the game list screen, they saw the following message, error saving RAM to SD card. At that point, no matter what they did, the in-game save they had just done wouldn't hold. Uh, on the other hand, if it loaded a battery-backed game where they had no previous save data, they had zero issues with the save function. Um, so I've heard of stuff like that before. So I think what happens is the save from the original is having issues being read by the new device. This is most common with Genesis because of the way different saves are created on different platforms aren't interchangeable without some kind of conversion. I haven't really had this problem before. And in fact, I remember playing Link's Awakening going back and forth between my EverDrive on my original Game Boy. And I believe at the time I played it on my analog NT Mini. I didn't have any issues there. So I would try to check out um, any forum or Discord server where there's people with the analog products that may be able to walk you through this because I'm not really sure what the problem would be. My guess might be it's something with how the Retroid 2 saves its save data uh, because, the, you know, when I was going back and forth between an EverDrive and it, it 
there was no issues, but I've never even tried an NT Mini Noir. So uh, maybe it's related to that. Maybe it's related to the Retroid, but I would absolutely defer to people who are uh, more experts at the analog products to answer that part of it, because this is something that you should be able to do, because I've definitely done it before. Next from Dave Sedge, and I hope I pronounced the name right, by the way. I think I've gotten a few wrong this week, but uh, I'm trying. I'm always trying. Anyway, they accumulated a whole bunch of old consoles when they lived in Japan and haven't really powered them on in about 15 years. So they wanted to know, is it better to open them up and inspect them before powering on or power them on first and then see what their condition is? And also, is there a central resource where all of this care and maintenance issues um, are collected so that they could just reference it? Uh, Yeah, the wiki that I haven't launched yet. That's one of the many things we planned on doing. And there's so many people with folders on their hard drives ready to upload. I'm I'm really sorry. We'll get to it. There's just too many too too many hours worked and too few hours in a week, but I I promise we'll get on that. But to answer your question, definitely open them first. So something like the Fat PlayStation 2, you probably aren't going to have any issues with and it's a giant pain in the butt to open up. But Super Famicom, N64, PS1, original Xbox, Saturn, Dreamcast, Uh, Even sort of the GameCube, not quite, but I would open all of them and I would just do a visual inspection. Is it jam-packed with, uh, you know, with spiders or something like that? Or uh, do you see physically capacitors that have had any leakages? You're already aware of the clock capacitor on the original Xbox, but I've seen some Saturns have leaky caps on the power and you know i've certainly seen it not commonly but i have seen super nintendos and super famicoms where you could tell they're starting to the caps are just starting to leak so i cleaned them up and replaced them and because i did it before it got bad it was super easy whereas if you wait till the corrosion starts that's when you most likely would need to hire a pro so i would definitely say if you haven't used any of these in 15 years just carefully and cautiously open them first get a can of compressed air or one of those compressed air reverse vacuum cleaner thingies I always like to use, clean them all out, then power them up and go from there. The PlayStation 2 is the only one that I I probably wouldn't just because it's such a pain in the butt. Uh, I would just power it on and then open the tray and just kind of listen and hear and uh, a, a light shake test. You know, don't don't shake it like, you know, like somebody from the movies trying to shake a present to see what's inside, like lightly shake to see if you could hear anything rattling around in there. Pop the back of the fat PS2 off the hard drive slot and hit that with compressed air. And same thing, if you pop the back off and there's a wad of spiders nests in there don't turn it on, but I don't think you would need a full disassembly. Same with the GameCube. Pop the top case off with just the four screws, look in it, spray some compressed air around there. The rest of them I would. I would kind of open them up and really take a look and clean them and and kind of go from there. So also thank you very much for the kind words. Much appreciated. Gigi Gorgeous wants to know if I'm aware of any update on the HD Retrovision Dreamcast cables. Uh, I always joke that they'll be out around the same time as the wiki, but the honest truth is I have no clue what's going on. And I've been so busy, I haven't even had a chance to really talk to Nick or Steve in a long time, which sucks because I like both of them. They're both pretty good friends, and uh, I wish I had more time to keep up with all my friends, to be honest. But uh, no, no word whatsoever. I have no idea why they're not out. The last time I tested them, they worked perfect. I had zero complaints. I was super happy with it. So I, I have no idea if it's a combination of part shortage and... Uh, supply shortage or something else is going on, but ho- hopefully they'll be out soon. 
Alex S. wanted to follow up on a few things we've been discussing. First, in regards to magnification options for soldering stations, they found that the Coolertron brand digital microscope they found had uh, a much better refresh rate on the screen. The other model's focusing knob was a little nicer, but um, it was they preferred the refresh rate of the Coolertron one. So I... Um, you know, I think I'm going to to hold off on talking a little bit more about this because I want to buy a few myself and kind of check them out and then maybe do a giveaway with the ones that I don't use. But uh, I do really appreciate the feedback and I'm going to bookmark the ones that you talked about as well as your feedback on them so I could kind of know from a good starting off point. But I do definitely think that there is a place in the market for a much less expensive microscope you know, digital station for soldering to help people with the more complicated mods. You know, th there are $250 ones out there that perform really well, like like as good as ones that are twice as expensive, but not everybody wants to spend that much. You know, 50 bucks is a good price for something like that. So I'll check out the ones that you uh, that you installed and tested and, and kind of go from there. Uh, also, is there a difference? Completely different question. Is there a difference between setting your console's color space color space level to full and TV to full versus setting the console to limited and TV to limited. So uh, if they, as long as they match, that's the most important. Technically speaking, full range color gives you a more range of color. So you could, you know, you could technically get better details out of full range color. I don't think that most people would notice this. I know some people listening are going to probably be yelling at the TV or their monitor right now going like, of course we'll notice the difference. But I think the much more important factor is matching it. So you don't want to ever mismatch because that is noticeable and that does hurt the image. But I think as long as you just set it right, that's the most important thing. But if your TV does accept a full range signal, definitely use that over limited, even if it has the option to do both. And lastly, have I seen the new Xbox to HDMI device from a company named Electron Shepard? I've seen pictures of it online, and I believe that's the company that tweeted with me and offered to send me one to test. And I said, you know, please follow up after I'm done moving because I can't test anything at the moment. I think that's the same one. Looks cool, but as always with every product, I don't want to comment on it until I see it myself. And once again, zero disrespect to anybody. I don't mean, I'm not inferring anything about this product. The Electron Shepard one might be the best Xbox HDMI adapter ever made. I just don't know. I, I And I don't really want to, you didn't ask me to comment on it. You just asked if I'd seen it, but I just, I don't want to say anything other than I've seen it and I'll probably be checking it out soon because I just want to make sure to test everything myself. So uh, thanks for the questions, and I appreciate the feedback on the microscopes. I'll definitely be checking those out. A couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, they recently bought an A10 VGA switch, per my suggestion. And it's, they say it's a manual switch that uses physical buttons, but it's also started auto-switching. Now, the one that I had was both. Uh, you could set it to auto, or you could manually switch between. And I think... I think sometimes it would try to auto sense and then I would have to just manually set it to which one. Uh, so if that's what's happening to yours, that's what happened to mine. And it never really got annoying because it didn't do it during gameplay. It was just like, all right, let me turn on my Super Nintendo. Let me turn on my XM29 because that's what I had at the time. Uh, and I'd look over and it was it had automatically switched over to a console that wasn't even on. So I just went, all right, and I, I hit it. And then it once it was there, it never changed. So... 
I can't. I don't think that happened a lot, but it was never an issue for me just because it never ruined the gaming experience. It just took five more seconds in starting up. So if you're saying that it's auto-switching on you during gameplay, I would really look into that. But if you were just having the same problem that I did, I would double-check and see if there's any dip switches. Maybe open it up, take the top off, and see if there's any accessible dip switches or configuration on the inside of it. Download a service manual if they have one. Um, but basically... Uh, if it's really just what I described, you might just have to live with it. And, you know, for the price that you probably got the Switch for, it probably wouldn't be a big deal. Because those things used to be really expensive. And I'm assuming you picked one up pretty cheap on eBay. So, um, Second, with the prices of game collecting only getting higher and higher, what do I personally think is the best option for trying to play games on original hardware, but still on a budget? So I'll tell you my opinion on this, but this is just my opinion. I'm certainly not telling anybody how to play, uh, and this is a little bit of a gray area here, so people I'm sure are going to get mad that I said this, but my my opinion is that I have ROM carts for many reasons, but when somebody says, hey, uh, here's this new game, new to me, that I haven't heard of, here's this retro game that's new to you that you might like, give this a try, I'll fire it up on the ROM cart, when I have time. And if I really like it, I'll immediately go and first I'll check, uh, like I'll check eBay prices just to see, just to expect how much it is. And if it's under a hundred bucks, I'll then check with my local stores. Cause I always try to support local. Uh, and if they have it cool, I'll buy it. And if they don't, I'll try to check eBay or something next. And I don't know why, but if I really like a game, even though I have it on the ROM cart and it's a perfectly good experience, and it's reasonably priced, I want to own it. It's you don't have to, you know, it's not, you know, it's not something I need for the experience to be right. And in, in almost all of these cases, I'll get the game, open up the cartridge, clean the pins just in case, make sure it works, and then it sits on my shelf looking pretty while I still play the ROM of the game. I just it's something to me where if I enjoy it, I think I want it. And it, you know, it's no right or wrong answer for that. It's just my preference. However, I will wholeheartedly admit that if I play a game like Neo Turf Masters on the MVS or on the AES, that's a very cool game. I like that a lot. I am never spending $20,000 on that game. Never. So, you know, you could report me for theft. You could say that I'm a, you know, I, I, I'm a hypocrite for doing this because I talk about preservation and support, but I steal Neo Turf Masters. That's fine. I'll accept that. That's totally cool. Uh, but there, there's just, that's not something that's important to me. Now, on the flip side of that, let's say my copy of Super Metroid ever dies. I love that game. I, I, I mostly play it off of ROMs now anyway for the awesome ROM hacks. But if I ever plug it in and found out it's totally dead and I had to spend 300 bucks to get one, I probably would. I love that game. I want to own that. I'll play that game every couple years till I die. <laughs> like, so for me, it's basically just ROM carts for everything uh, and for usage. But And even the Mr. Now is taking a lot of that as well. And games that I really like, I try to buy if it's important to me within reason. So once again, that is only that is only my opinion. That is not what I suggest everybody does. I just feel like I should I would offer my you know my perspective on this in case it points you in the the right direction. Now you did mention things like using Voltar's conversion boards so that you could buy something like a Japanese game and then take an English patch and add it to the original ROM and without it's it's technically a non-destructive thing cuz you could reverse it so there's no cutting involved 
So I, I do like that, and I think that is pretty cool for people who want that experience, that tactile experience of plugging your cartridge in and using it. I think actually that's probably the best option for Japanese games with um, English translations, or if just a Japanese import is much cheaper than the U.S. version, also a great way to play it, especially if it's things like games like F-Zero, right? You don't really need to read the text. You, if, if you've played the game before, you know what's going on. So uh, I, I do agree, and I think... Maybe now that I'm moving to a place with more space, I'll I'll start doing that because I would actually have the room for extra games. But for me personally, just ROM carts and then buy the originals if it's super important. Uh, lastly, since this is the last Q&A from this place, what are some good stories that I feel like sharing from this apartment? Um, I they imagine there's a lot of pretty neat things that have happened here over the years and not all of it ends up in a podcast or video. Was the best thing the Terminator stuff? I bet it was. So that's excellent. I never I never thought of that, but I think it would be really fun to do a podcast with somebody, um, especially somebody who maybe maybe I do a podcast with two other people, somebody who grew up in and around New York. I know quite a few friends here that grew up here and somebody that's never even really been here, somebody that grew up in the suburbs only and, you know, especially somebody out in the middle of nowhere. And we all just talk about New York stories and have our own reactions. I think that would be really, really funny. But you're correct. If I had to pick one thing to just represent how much fun I've had here, the cool friends that I've made while I've been working out of here, and the silliness that I've been a part of, absolutely, no doubt, the opening Terminator theme with Ronnie on bass, my friend Kendall on drums. Uh, I did all the guitars in, in it, and uh, and Yehel did all those really cool effects to the video. Ronnie was the one flicking off the consoles. Me with the stupid 3D glasses at the end. I think that's the coolest and uncoolest, nerdiest thing I've ever done, both at the same time. So thank you for remembering that one. But yeah, if I had to pick one thing, that would be it. But I will definitely have some kind of fun podcast talking about this. Um, I bet, you know, I bet... Louis Zezeron would be a good person because while he's certainly not somebody that's never been to the city, he's traveled all over the world and he's lived in other places around the world. So I think Louis might be a good person to have on there with another New Yorker and me who's kind of been in and out of New York and just have a conversation about all the crazy stuff I've seen around here. I'm gonna, I bet you Louis would be down for that too. I think he'd have fun with that. Maybe I'll do that on his podcast. So uh, yeah, great suggestion. Thank you for that one. I'm definitely going to take it. Well, that's it. The last podcast from the New York City apartment studio office thing, however you want to describe it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, certainly mixed feelings. I love it here, but I'm interested to see what comes next. So it's been a lot of fun shooting from here. Uh, the, the Probably the least favorite part is not being able to have the AC on, which is why I look like this at the end of them. But hopefully that'll all change soon. I'm not sure when the next one of these is going to be. I'll, I'll try to do it. Um, on the same schedule, even even if I just try to have some fun with it, you know, sitting in an empty house somewhere, just kind of shooting them as best I can. But it might be a little sporadic for the next three weeks, but I'll definitely try to keep up. Um, maybe I'll do it in a way where it's not following the exact same schedule that I normally do, but I, I get them... Uh, I get to them when I can. Uh, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll try my best. I promise you that. But either way, any questions for next time, just leave them wherever it is that you support in this post. It might take me a while to get to them, but I will absolutely get to them at some point. And of course, and as always, thank you all so much for your support because you're keeping all of the behind the scenes research and development going as well as the website all of the podcasts, the videos, which I'll start back up as soon as I'm settled and pretty much everything else I'm involved with. So thank you all so much and I'll see you as soon as I can.